2: Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in.
3: Today's jobs report defying
4: all expectations. That job stunner, the stock surge, the Dow topping 27,000.
5: A job shocker. $2.5 added to the payrolls in May.
6: As good as these numbers are,
5: the best numbers are yet to come. Stocks soar.
7: Massive rally on Wall Street. Stocks are surging.
5: The Dow surging 6.8% this week. The Nasdaq near an all-time high. But the problems aren't behind us. From protests.
6: We don't inevitably have to have a second wave.
5: To the pandemic. On day 159 of this global health crisis, we have a special report tonight, focusing on problems and the path forward. Here's CNBC farmer reporter, Meg Terrell.
2: Well, good evening, everybody. We're in the midst of a historic pandemic and America is entering its 11th night of protests following the killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. These two storms, as Merck's CEO, Ken Frazier, put it earlier this week, share a common thread. They reveal the deep inequities that run through our society. Tonight, we'll bring you an inside look at efforts to develop treatments to make a dent in this pandemic. But we start with another look into our healthcare system. The fact that these protests are happening around the issue of racial injustice during a pandemic that disproportionately affects African-Americans. In just one example, take a look at this. CDC data show that in New York City, the death rate from COVID-19 is more than double for patients who are Black and African-American compared with those who are white. And these are trends that we see across the country. Dr. Lauren Powell is the executive director of Time's Up Healthcare, and previously led the office of health equity for the state of Virginia's Department of Health. Dr. Powell, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I want to ask you about a really remarkable op-ed that you wrote in STAT News this week, where you said this situation, this coming together of events was your worst nightmare. You saw this coming, tell us about that.
0: Yes, um, I definitely, I did see this coming. Um, As a public health professional and uh, also as uh, a black woman, my biggest fear was essentially that these two moments would would converge together um understanding very early on the impacts that covid-19 would have on the african american community um uh, my biggest nightmare was that there would be another shooting of an unarmed black person and that that could lead to massive protests um in the midst of a pandemic and and while i understand the anguish and the need and, and the the desire to protest uh and the underlying root for protesting. Um, this is still a pandemic. And so that is the crux of, of my worst nightmares. How do we still keep people safe in this public health emergency?
2: Well, one of the things you also point out and one of the things you have worked on in your career is the fact that these uh, inequities exist in the healthcare care system. Um, have you seen Uh, Any evidence that this moment is a moment for progress there? Uh, We talked with Dr. Fauci earlier today who said there are both short-term and long-term efforts that need to be made. Do you see any progress that is starting as a result of this?
0: Well, I think you know we can look sort of at the state level, and we have to look state by state to actually see what interventions are, are being um, implemented. Um, I am encouraged by some of the work of the Commonwealth of Virginia um, that has a health equity leadership task force and a health equity work group that is focused specifically on mitigating um, the health equity impacts of COVID-19. and and essentially very focused on ensuring that um, populations that are under-resourced are getting the resources that they actually need uh, in order to come out of this public health emergency a little bit better.
2: Well, Dr. Powell, stick with us. I wanna bring in also Dr. Paula Johnson, who's a former professor of medicine and public health at Harvard. She's also a cardiologist and she's currently the president of Wellesley College. Uh, Dr. Johnson, thanks for joining us on the phone. Uh, you know, you wrote a piece recently uh, this week about a Wellesley alumna um, who graduated from Wellesley just five years uh, after I did, actually, um, and she died at the end of April from COVID-19. Uh, you said that her death tells us volumes. Tell us about uh, Rana Zoe
8: Mungin. Uh Meg, it's, it's great to be with you. Thank you, as well as uh, you, uh, Dr. Powell. Um, you know, uh, Zoe Mungin was was a, a brilliant young writer and a teacher in Brooklyn and had underlying asthma, and she began to have symptoms, uh, typical symptoms of COVID, uh, went to the hospital actually uh, twice and was treated for asthma, was quite ill, uh, actually even was told that she might have anxiety was sent home until the third time when she had to call an ambulance and get to the hospital. When she uh, was intubated, and we know that this disease quickly turned from a reasonable oxygen you know, level in the blood to one that is quite low, and she never recovered. Um, you know, the, there was a tremendous attempt to get her to uh, transfer to a tertiary care hospital in, Manhattan so that she could uh, get on one of the the new trials Um, and with a lot of intervention actually by a lot of Wellesley alumni she was finally transferred but but so sadly she passed away Um, and it's it's really a story that is heartbreaking uh, but not unfortunately Mm -hmm. unusual in terms of um, women of color people of color but I think the mix of sex of gender and and race is particularly toxic uh, and um, the lack of taking people's uh, symptoms seriously uh, and even when care is accessible, it really not being adequate. Mm.
2: And I know that you both have done work also around uh, gender uh, issues in healthcare as well. And one of the things you wrote, Dr. Johnson, is that It wasn't until the 1990s that women started being included in clinical trials, and that came about uh, after uh, women were elected in in larger numbers to Congress after the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas hearings. Do you see this as that kind of similar moment, um, a pivotal point in history that could actually stir some change?
8: This is such an important moment in time when we have seen both issues of sexism and racism and the combination um, the great inequities in our society really laid bare by this epidemic, both from a health and healthcare perspective, from an inequity in uh, in, in what's happening in terms of income inequality and the unemployment rates, and then on top of that, to experience um, the additional tragedies of the killings. That we've uh, seen recently, on top of so many others, it's really a, a, a coming together of so many insults. That it is a moment, I think, a wake-up moment, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that, you know, across the country. And as we think about women and uh, and women of color and their uh, health status and their treatment, um, it is a moment where I think there will be a greater call. For more active engagement at the tables that make the decisions, and I think that's where we're missing. Um, if we are not at the tables making the decisions about the trials, about the analyses, about the care, about the public health structures, then um, then we are left out. Uh, and you know, I, I think about Stacey Abrams' brilliant abed today. Um, voting may not be the full answer, but. You know the bus doesn't run without the wheels and you know on Mm -hmm. Tuesday we saw some really positive outcomes but it's part of what i view in higher education also is my job which is how do we ensure that not only are we bringing a diversity of students to our campus that we are so proud to have but that we are working hard to ensure that they learn how to engage across different but that they also learn what is it to be civically engaged and to really be Mm -hmm. um, an active member of society in a way that leads to structural change.
2: Well, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Powell, we're out of time, but thank you both so much for being with us for this important discussion, and we would love to have you back to continue it. Thank you both. Thank you
0: so much. Thank you so much.
2: And earlier today, Dr. Anthony Fauci joined us on CNBC addressing what comes next in the fight against this virus.
6: I think if you look at the nation as a whole, things are plateauing and coming down. There's no doubt about that. We don't inevitably have to have a second wave. I mean, people talk about it, but it doesn't necessarily have to occur. As new infections start to creep up, which they will, as we get into the fall in the winter it's the the way we and the efficiency and effectiveness in which we put the manpower the systems the tests to identify isolate and contact trace that will determine how successful we are in preventing that wave i believe that the utilization of monoclonal antibodies and or plasma that's passively transferred and or what we call hyperimmune globulin, which is derived from the plasma of people who are convalescent, is a a potentially important modality of both treatment and even potentially prevention. So I have some cautious optimism that this approach among several could actually have a good chance of making us have an advance towards good therapy and even good prevention.
2: And we turn now to another effect of the pandemic, a look at its health impacts outside of COVID-19 itself. You can learn a lot about a society by the medicines that it takes. And this pandemic is changing that picture for us. Take a look at this. Prescriptions of childhood vaccines, they've plummeted as routine doctor's visits have been put on hold. Public health officials are now warning of the risk of diseases like measles starting to spread again. And they're encouraging parents to make sure their kids get their routine shots for the things that we can protect them from. But prescriptions of another kind have gone way up. This graph shows a spike in prescriptions for antidepressants, and it's so stark that the FDA has announced a shortage of Zoloft and some of its generic versions due to increased demand. These are tense and anxious times, and we don't know when the pandemic will end. But we do know, as Dr. Fauci said, that effective new medicines could be an important tool in fighting it. And the first and a new class known as antibody drugs for COVID 19 started human clinical trials this week from Eli Lilly and Abcelera. And Regeneron is close on their heels. Chief Scientific Officer Dr. George Yankopoulos joins us now to discuss this new class of drugs. Dr. Yankopoulos, thank you so much for being here tonight. And it's a really exciting approach because you've already shown this works in Ebola. Tell us about the successes there.
9: Well, As you heard from Dr. Fauci, there's a lot of hope that antibodies that we can make outside of the body, we can make them recombinantly, it's called, in large bioreactors, can be given back to humans and essentially mimic the best of the type of immune response you could get from a vaccine without the requirement for a vaccine. So these treatments could be bridges or even alternatives to vaccines. As you said, we've done this before. Uh, We have a a good track record for here, particularly for a disease that's much more universally lethal than uh, COVID-19, which is Ebola, where we showed that an antibody cocktail that we had put together, um, that is these antibodies that mimic what the body normally uses to fight a virus, Um, that we could generate such a cocktail outside of the body, grow it up in bioreactors, purify it, give it back to human beings. And in these cases, for a disease like Ebola, which as I said, is a much more horrific and universally fatal disease, uh, we could say, for example, the people who were in early stages of the infection, more than 90% of them with our antibody cocktail. And so I think that that gives a lot of hope that a similar approach, which we're also trying for Uh, the coronavirus, will be at least as effective.
2: And we know that you are gearing up to start the first human clinical trials. Tell us about what the timelines look like to when this drug could potentially be available, maybe on an emergency use basis. None of the timelines we've been talking about during this pandemic for drug development are normal. So what do yours look like?
9: You yeah, know, we've done everything that we can to expedite and do everything at risk so that we could possibly bring these um, potentially life-saving medicines uh, as soon as possible to address the pandemic. So we are initiating clinical trials hopefully this week with our cocktail of antibodies. And we're hoping that if all goes well, that we might start getting data in a few weeks, which means that... Uh, perhaps by the summer, the end of the summer, that these antibody cocktail might be more broadly available to larger segments of the population.
2: And the fact that you have a cocktail approach that could potentially protect against the virus mutating, is that why you have that approach?
9: Right. So I'm sure everybody probably remembers or knows that for Uh, traditional viral drugs, antiviral drugs, like were used for HIV or for hepatitis C. Early studies involved single drugs, but very rapidly the viruses escaped by mutagenesis uh, and you lost the efficacy of the single drug treatment. So for traditional antiviral drugs, the fundamental realization was combinations or cocktails could not only perhaps provide more efficacy, better results, but would also protect against escape by the virus, by mutagenesis. Uh, this was shown, as I said, first for HIV, but now has is, is become the, the lesson. Well, for these new classes of drugs, uh, these antibody approaches, that hasn't really been demonstrated, but a lot of us prospectively predicted it would be the case. We've recently shown that that is the case, in preclinical studies, that treatments with single antibodies are prone to rapid viral escape. But when we put cocktails of antibodies together, which is what the body essentially normally does, those can be very resistant to this sort of escape. So that's why we prospectively designed a cocktail approach as opposed to just a single antibody approach and are putting that forward. And that's the approach that for us will be in clinical trial. So others have focused on single antibody approaches. We were prospectively a little bit worried that they might lead to escape and subsequent problems more broadly. And so we endeavored to bring forward this cocktail approach.
2: Well, Dr. Ankopoulos, thank you for joining us. We look forward to hearing about those clinical trials beginning, and we hope to have you guys back when they do. Thanks again.
5: All right,
2: stay All right, here's safe.
5: what's coming up next, tonight. Straight ahead, the cost of the drug so many people are putting so much hope in. How much should remdesivir cost? And how much is it worth to Gilead? And...
7: It's been very challenging.
5: ...a hero nurse who traveled from Missouri to help New York in the city's desperate time of need. But you won't believe what happened next. Before the break... Our country on Friday, June 5th.
2: nurse is back home and reunited with her family in Missouri after serving on the front lines at a hospital in New York hit hard by the coronavirus. Tonight, Megan Lindsay in her own words.
7: The chance to serve my country and to go out there and help uh, really kind of fit in with who I wanted to be as a nurse and where I wanted my career to go. Caring for patients as they're dying alone without their family was just unbelievably sad. And, um, I just, my heart was there for the family and for them, and I just wanted to make sure that that patient wasn't alone and knew that he was loved. We didn't have a laundry mat in our hotel, so we would have to, as soon as we stepped foot into the hotel room, degarb all of our stuff, put it in trash bags, take a shower, and then we'd have to go to the laundry mat and wash it. Now, since coming back, I'm having a hard time finding a job. It's um, Crazy because as a nurse, usually there's a shortage everywhere and you can find a job anywhere. So it's been very challenging and I know that God has a plan for me and I'm just kind of waiting to see what it is. The experience was one of a lifetime and I feel like God was with me the whole time and he protected me. I met uh, hundreds and hundreds of great, awesome people and I just, I love that I got to do that. And I'm so honored that I got to be there in New York to help out.
2: Megan tells CNBC that this trip to New York was the first time she's ever been on a plane and the first time she's ever seen the ocean. So we thank Megan. Thank you for coming. We talked earlier about new drugs in development for COVID-19, but the first to prove effectiveness against the disease was Gilead's remdesivir, approved last month by the FDA for emergency use. Now, Gilead is committed to donating its existing supply, enough to treat around 200,000 people. But soon, it will announce the price of that drug. And already, the debate's begun about how much drug companies should profit from a pandemic. Dr. Peter Bach is director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcome at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Jeff Porges is senior managing director and director of therapeutics research at SVB Lyric. Welcome to both of you. Dr. Porges, I wanna start with you as you asked the Gilead leadership on their first quarter conference call, uh, whether this pandemic should be different from how they've generated investor return for treating other infectious diseases like hepatitis C and HIV. Do you believe it should be any different?
10: Well, thank you, first of all, for having me, Megan, and congratulations on the show. Uh, Indeed, we have asked Gilead several times about their expectations for profit from remdesivir, and I think the fairly consistent answer is um, they don't expect the same profitability that you'd expect from a traditional pharmaceutical product. On the other hand, they don't expect zero profitability either. Um, I think at the end of the day, they are treating A catastrophic illness. And that's what we want them to do. So for a number of reasons, uh, we think that they should be generating a profit, albeit one at a much lower level than the rest of their portfolio.
2: Well, Dr. Bach, you know, after we were talking about this on Twitter this week and you tweeted that Wall Street's expecting Gilead to extract maximum revenue, exceeding treatment value. No one should be surprised by this. Uh, At a $5,000 estimated price, we don't know where they're going to price it, but that's where Jeff estimates it. Do you think that's too much?
11: Well, it's well above any reasonable amount you would pay for the drug based on how well it works. And like everyone, I'm thrilled that we have any therapies in this area. Uh, But the data for this drug is that it shortens the illness for a brief period. It's questionable if it prevents deaths, which which is the key thing that's causing us all to be, you know, sort of locked up in our homes. And we can really make a mistake here. It's actually not about the money. It's about sending a signal to the pharmaceutical industry that any drug, even if it doesn't work that well, uh, you know, can generate billions in profits. What we should have is a system where the drugs that really transform this illness, the reward should go to the companies that do that, because sort of participation trophies actually blunt the kind of risks that companies are willing to take to try and really You know, transform this disease, change society's kind of trajectory uh, if they can do a modest job and not really figure out if their treatments work. And that's been their other strategy to not really study this drug well, just let the government study it well enough to get it to this point.
2: Well, Jeff, I want to kind of pivot on that question about how the reward should really go to the companies that make a big difference and to ask you kind of your thoughts on the messages being sent by vaccine developers here. J&J, for example, saying they're doing this on a nonprofit basis during this pandemic. Uh, If there is a message from the drug industry that drug development and vaccine development is expensive and risky, are they undercutting that argument by saying they're doing this as a nonprofit endeavor?
10: well certainly a number of the largest companies in the industry have suggested that they would be selling these products on a non-profit basis Uh, that hasn't been a very consistent message and a number of other companies for example Moderna, have said that we should expect them to generate a profit and they believe that there will be a price point that generates a profit i think it's it generates it produces a very negative signal to the industry if in responding to the largest medical event of our lifetimes they aren't able to make a profit after all This is what we want the pharmaceutical industry to do. We want them to innovate and invest and come up with products that make a difference in our lives and nothing would make more of a difference than a vaccine or a medicine for COVID. Um, I certainly recognize Peter's point of view that this is a marginal improvement, but this is how medicine advances It's small steps. And then you look over your shoulder and you say, wow, we've made a set of big steps um, over a number of years. So this is a first step, I think. Mm.
2: Yeah, Peter. Last word to you. Uh, do you think that the drug industry comes out of this with a better reputation or with a worse one? Uh, because people will be outraged over anything they charge.
11: Yeah, I mean they're in a tough position, and that you know it, it's people will judge whatever decisions uh, Gilead or any of these companies with successful products do. But I want to get back to Jeff's point and realize that Janssen is saying or Johnson and Johnson they will sell this vaccine at no profit. Because these companies will get enormous benefits from producing products that help society and patients today for COVID. And that benefit comes in non-monetary forms. And so I understand shareholders want to talk only about dollars and cents. But the reasons the companies are doing this is because of all these non-monetary benefits they will get if they really step up here and show that the innovation engine they claim they have under the hood, which we see some evidence of, of course, but inconsistent, is actually there and thriving and can step up and really help society at this time of need.
2: All right, Peter Bach, Jeff Porges, thank you both for joining us for a very interesting discussion. And thank Mm -hmm. everybody out there for joining us for this special report focused on health and the medical side of this crisis. Next up, the focus turns back to business.
5: Straight ahead, three business owners on their path forward. With a surge in May hiring and Wall Street back near record highs, see if Main Street is starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel as well. We're back in two minutes.
7: Every day.
3: Today's jobs report defying all expectations.
1: 2.5
5: million jobs created in May.
6: Now we're opening and we're
5: opening with a bang. Cheers from Washington and Wall Street. The Dow surging more than 800 points. The NASDAQ is near record territory. But not everyone is sharing in the spoils. There is still pain on Main Street. Tonight, we'll see the American economy through the eyes of three business owners all trying to pave their own path forward. Now, here's Sarah Eisen.
3: Good evening, everyone. Over the next half hour, we will be speaking with business owners who've all had another nerve-wracking week. Many who made it through the pandemic found themselves dealing with protests. This half hour is designed for us to hear their stories and whether they're as optimistic as Wall Street. Speaking of, stocks surging today after the economy unexpectedly added two and a half million jobs last month, raising hope that the economy is recovering. The Dow rising 829 points, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq both adding more than 2% on the day. The Nasdaq hitting an all-time high intraday during the session before falling back a bit. For the week as a whole, it was a strong one. The Dow was up nearly 7%. The S&P just about five and the Nasdaq up almost a uh, three and a half there. And look at how far back we have come from the low point that we were in March. The three indexes are now all at least up 45 percent off those lows hit in March. Before we bring in tonight's business owners, I want to introduce my consultant this evening. David Dodson is a professor of management at Stanford Business School and an investor in several businesses. Professor Dodson, it's good to have you on board. Just quickly, are you sensing the optimism that we're seeing on Wall Street from the businesses you speak to and consult?
12: Well, not really, because on Wall Street, they can pull up on their computer and see whether their stocks are going up and down. But in the small business world, in the independent owners world, you have to see how many customers are coming in the door. And right now, people felt sort of like they got kind of kicked in the gut because just about the time things were opening up and people were getting a little spring in their step, then, of course, George Floyd's murder really put a, you know, uh, a, a... a cloud over the country. And I think we're trying to get out of that cloud, but also recognizing that that we have some issues that go way beyond COVID that we're going to have to deal with as well as a society.
3: Well, it's good to have you on board tonight. Let's talk to a few of those businesses. Our first one yeah. tonight, an early mover in the push to shop local. Thomas McIntyre is the co-founder at Made in KC. It's a popular retailer in Kansas City known for selling specialty items and apparel made by local vendors and artisans. Thomas, good to have you on board. The message from the jobs report today was that companies are adding jobs and hiring back people. Has that been your experience?
13: It has been thus far. So we had to close all of our locations uh, when this started. And then once we opened back up on May 14th, we brought uh, all of our hourly staff back. We had brought our salaried staff back before that. And so we're probably back to about 60 to 65% of our workforce. Um, and I think as we expand hours over the next 30 to 60 days, we'll get closer to that 90% uh, of our employees back on board.
3: Professor Dotson?
12: Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about your story, Thomas. I mean, you, you're the American dream in so many ways because you were a CPA and sort of grinding through that life, but you you, you had in your heart you wanted to be an entrepreneur and be, a, be your own business person, and you saw this opportunity that everybody else had missed, which is people wanted to buy things that were not just made in America but made in Kansas City, and they were local. And what I'm wondering is as you expanded and you grew store after store after store and customers kept coming back and buying your products, what has, what has the last 100 days done to your risk profile and the way you're thinking about the future and how you're going to run the business?
13: Yes, we are a primarily brick and mortar company, and so this has hit us uh, full on. Uh, we have an online channel, but primarily our, our sales come through people shopping in our stores. And so, from that standpoint, it's it's been concerning. Uh, but we we firmly believe uh, that this is going to make even bigger shift to local, uh, a shorter supply chain, um, knowing what you're buying from your neighbors. Uh, we be, we believe is a very strong part of retail going forward, and we're very optimistic. We're very uh, cautiously optimistic about the next you know 12 to 18 months. Um, but we are as bullish on our concept as ever, and are excited to move forward and support. Uh, even people that have lost their jobs that have turned to making their own crafts that we can now support and sell in our stores.
3: Thomas, I just showed the stunning rally we've seen on Wall Street. And one of the threads, the narratives there is that there's a lot of pent up demand. And as states reopen, consumers will come back. What have you seen in terms of the consumer response?
13: So we, again, opened up on May 14th uh, with all of our locations besides one, and it has been slow. There's not been one large event that's going to prove to be a catalyst that brings everyone back out to shopping. Uh, but we have a good customer base, and they are showing up, and they are buying from us. Uh, I think at this point this past week in our in our stores, uh, we've seen about 70% of what we would expect to see at this point in the year. Uh, which is promising to us. Uh, there's still a lot of concerns, a lot of a lot of fear out there, and, and people are shopping. So uh, it's it's not where it needs to be, um, but we are making really good progress. We think.
3: So are you as optimistic as Wall Street?
13: Uh, I, I would think in the short term, no, uh, long term, yes. Uh, I think that we've, we've remained optimistic throughout this process. Uh, I don't think tomorrow or, or next week or even next month will be what we wanted it to be before all this started. Uh, but we have a very long term view of our company and are, are very optimistic about what's to come.
12: Yeah, I've got a question for you. You know, you've got a concept that you've proven to that's working, and people want to buy goods from Kansas City. At some point, I was thinking, you know, the next store is going to get incremental returns. Have you ever thought about those other 25 or 50 cities that are just like Kansas City that might want to buy local as well, and that that might be a way that you could expand?
13: Certainly. Yeah, we have. We think that is one of our long-term strategies. We believe that there's a lot of work to do here in Kansas City and have a footprint that we've been trying to grow over the past five years. And uh, we've talked to many cities and people ask why we haven't done this in, in, in several cities and it's we want to do it properly in this city first and then potentially utilize partners or, or other, other avenues to make it work in other cities. And if we were to see it happening in other cities without our power, we'd be happy to see that. We believe in local. We believe in what it does for community, and we um, are all for it. If others don't do it, I believe we will, uh, but we want to make sure that we've done things properly here, and uh, I think expansion like that is part of our future, but only when the timing is right.
3: Thomas, how is the experience different shopping right now during the pandemic? We just saw a map of Kansas City. Uh, we're still seeing cases rise. Testing is up, which is good, but hospitalizations are also increasing. So what sort of safety precautions do you take and how's the whole experience different?
13: Yeah, We've been really proud of our approach thus far we put a lot of thought into it we put a lot of guidelines to it we talked to all of our employees made sure they felt safe first and foremost if they didn't they did not need to return to work Uh, and then we did everything we could to make sure our customer felt safe so we have plastic screens up Uh, you'll see in some of these pictures in between our cashiers and our customer we have face masks available for sale we have all of our employees wearing face masks hand sanitizer uh, throughout every location we have and um, primarily just making sure that everyone feels safe. We have reduced the amount of people that are allowed in our stores uh, based on their square footage and have stuck to that very strictly. And if any employee ever feels like they need to ask someone to leave, they're welcome to do so. In uh, Kansas City, uh, props to our mayor, prop to our, our government here, has really done a good job of facilitating our ability to act the way we need to act to, to be a safe functioning business.
3: Thomas, thank you for joining us. And I have to say, you have a fan here at CNBC. Our reporter, Leslie Picker, who's a Kansas City native, just just writing in that she's wearing your T-shirt right now. (laughs) Good luck with the reopening, and thank you.
13: I love that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
3: Here's what else. Good to have you. Professor Dodson staying on board. Here's what else is coming up next.
5: The pandemic and the protests a jeweler caught in the middle. Now with Wall Street soaring and with 2.5 million people hired in May, see his economic reality, his hopes, problems, and his path forward. And
4: I have lost about 50% of my income.
5: After his business was hit hard, he hit the road. Nothing can weigh this guy down. His story, next. First. What Our World Looks Like on Day 159 of This Global Pandemic.
3: back. Mark Miller's gyms in New York City have been shut down since March 16th, but he isn't letting that dampen his entrepreneurial spirit. Here's Mark in his own words.
4: We were at a peak of our performance. We were getting ready to open up our fourth location, and then the pandemic hit, and we were told to shut house. I have lost about 50% of my income. 50% was a major supporter to my family. So I was forced into another line of work. They gave me the nickname Kettlebell Guy because I've been delivering kettlebells and dumbbells to everyone around the city. My day basically starts at 3 a.m. when I load my car up and usually will make about anywhere from eight to 14 deliveries a day. I would say I've probably moved 20 tons worth of weight. Because of doing these equipment deliveries, I've been able to save my family and pay some bills. I'm an entrepreneur. And on top of that, I'm a New Yorker. And as a New Yorker, if you can make it in New York, especially now, you can make it anywhere.
3: Mark says he still has no idea when he'll be able to reopen his gyms, but we wish him well. Our next business is Worth More Jewelers. It's based in Atlanta and Decatur, Georgia, a family operation specializing in one-of-a-kind pieces that attract a loyal following. Owner Harris Botnick joins us now. Harris, thank you for joining us. Big story today is that companies are hiring back workers as states have reopened. What's been your experience with employees?
14: So since, since the shutdown, we are all in. We're 20 of us uh, employee-wise. So. We chose not to furlough anybody. So personally, we have not had to rehire anybody. Uh, but looking at the numbers today on the news certainly are encouraging for everybody.
3: And looking at the market, was that encouraging to you? And is that the kind of optimism that jives with what you're seeing in your business?
14: Absolutely. Uh, you know, we are a luxury business where we're, we're not a, a necessary thing, uh, although we have had a lot of people that have been coming in and saying, Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're open. They needed some retail therapy to pull them out of this funk after being shut in their houses for so long. But uh, definitely uh, the market being up, the the numbers, the employment numbers were just, uh, I thought, startling compared to what the predictions were. It was really, really fantastic to see. Professor? Well,
15: Harris, I mean, it's great to see that things are coming back and that you're feeling that optimism. And certainly what we saw in the stock market, it's nice that it's translating to your store and your customers. I've got a question for you, though. You applied for your PPP loan and it took a couple of months to get there. And yet you kept all 20 employees. What was it as a leader that led you to decide that that was the right decision when everybody else was furloughing employees?
14: Um, We've been very fortunate. We've been in business going on 27 years now, and much of that time we've had our same crew. And, And our crew is constantly there for us. They're constantly there for our customers. And as a small business, we knew long ago that we understood the jewelry business. But without the right people in our stores to take care of our customers, you can't do business, no matter what you're in. So it was very important for us to be able to step up for our employees to show them You're there for us year-round. We want you to also know that we're there for you. All these, all the hard work that you do, all the nonstop days, all the the overtime that you put in for your clients, we just didn't feel right furloughing them. I think financially, everybody else in my industry that I talked to, it made sense financially to let them go and put them on uh, unemployment. But just as a family decision and we consider our crew our family, we didn't feel good about making that decision.
15: Well, it might end up being a great long-term decision because I can't imagine the level of loyalty that you built with those 20 people by keeping them on during this time. You know, there's sort of a saying that when things get, get difficult and the water level comes down, you sort of see the rocks. I'm wondering, as a business person, what has happened over the last 150 days that you've discovered as a business person that's made you a better business person that might in the long term work out well for you and your family and your company?
14: I think that's an awesome point because we, we first saw it in 2008, that's when we opened our second location, which in 2007 seemed like a fantastic idea, the economy was booming, everything was strong. 2008 hit, we opened our second location in May, everything by then have come to uh, a, a quick stop as far as the economy was. So what I thought, though, for, for us personally, what that did is it made us better business people once again. It made us really, really crack yeah. down. We'd been in business at that time for 15 years. So just like this time, it gave us time to reflect where, what can we do out of the box? How can we improve? How can we stay top of mind? How can we show customers and our clients that the small business really is where it's at? There are so many advantages, keeping money in your community, being able to support your community by us, thing in business, we're able to give back to the community, obviously. So it just helps. I think you have to step back. You have to look at everything in your business and see, where can I improve? And I think that the people will come out stronger who are able to make it through. Not everybody's going to make it through, but the people who are, who are going to come out stronger.
15: Well, I was thinking about, you know, so much of your business is also the repair business. And, you know, that brings people in. And even if there's a little bit of a slow recovery, in terms of buying luxury goods, you know, the, I was just wondering about the opportunity to really press the repair business, so that you keep that connective tissue with your customers. So that when they have disposable income and they have the confidence to spend, you you still have that connection with the customers. I was wondering if, and you know, to what extent, you can press the repair
14: business. Yeah, it's definitely something that we can go after, uh, and we do have some some lines that we use for. Basic print ads or online ads at this point or somebody yanked your chain and we show a picture of a broken chain. It's just sort of in your face. It expresses what we're about. But we have two fantastic in-house jewelry repair people. And jewelry repair is an important part of our business, not only because it brings people in on a regular basis, but even on times like this where somebody might not be buying the new piece of jewelry or as big of a new piece of jewelry, It gives them a time to go through their jewelry box. And I can't tell you how many calls I've gotten because everybody is cleaning out things at home and found all this jewelry that they no longer wear. and They want to restyle it (laughs) or they found things that they want to repair that have just been sitting aside that they didn't have time to deal with. So I think that is a great step forward for people to sort of ease their way back into things to feel good. It's something they already have. They're repurposing it and putting it to new use.
3: Harris, it's good to hear that things are coming back to normal. Thank you for joining us tonight.
14: Thank you so much.
3: Owner of Worthmore Jewelers in Atlanta. Next up, the path forward for the owner of a limo business. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's bring in our next business owner tonight. Not only did the pandemic cost her business, Now the protests have forced the cancellation of her first booking since starting her path forward. Maria Priestley is the owner of Empress Elite Limousine in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for joining us tonight, Maria. Tell us what the last few days and weeks have been like for you.
16: Well, thanks for having me. Um, The last few weeks and let's say the last few months have been pretty challenging for all of us um, in our industry, anywhere from small operators to large operators. Uh, we're facing a lot of different challenges um, right now, initially with COVID-19 and, and now, like you mentioned, we're getting an impact as well from the protests in Atlanta and everywhere across the US.
3: The big, the big story today, Maria, was that companies are starting to hire people back as economies like Georgia's reopened. What's happened to your drivers
16: and, and your employees? Well, I think every industry is going to be different. There's going to be some stages for us to come back. Um, unfortunately, I think that we're going to be one of the industries that is going to take the longest to recover. We, With travel being restricted, corporate America is not allowing the travel just yet. A lot of weddings, a lot of events. A lot of different things have been canceled, big events that were happening in Atlanta this year. Um, we just missed the wonderful Prom season, which is what we look for every year. And we have the final four, the masters, um, a lot of different things. So hiring employees right now for the volume that we are getting, it's uh, not feasible because we are literally less than 10%. um, Some operators 5% below our normal operating. um, um, So it's, it's bringing people back. It's gonna take us longer than any other industry. You know, Maria, we've seen the market rebound so
3: strongly with stocks climbing back more than 40 percent from their lows in March. The mood is better and it's excited about the reopening. It sounds like that's not where you are. How would you describe your level of optimism right now?
16: Listen, among all the things that are happening, we always got to keep our hopes up and uh, we see things moving, which that's a good sign. I think that with the stock market the past few days, you can see the trend of people starting to, people want to get out, people want to travel. Um, We we, we do see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think that recovering for these past few months is going to be difficult um, for some more than others. We do see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I think that this year... (laughs) It's going to be difficult to to, to to see anything bigger than what we were projecting. So it's going to be slow. It's coming back. Um, wish we was faster than this and sooner than later. And now that we were getting through all these stages, the market showing up and, and trending up, then now we're dealing with a different problem, a different situation uh, with the protests.
15: Wait. Well, you know, Maria, don't forget that even though business is down so low, that you've created some pretty substantial value in the fact that you know how to run a limousine business. I mean, you spent 19 years in the corporate world. you figured out how to run a limousine business. It seems to me that if you can do everything you can to maintain that uh, connection with those employees so that you can bring them back and somehow keep those cars re- ready to go, when things come, you know, business is going to come back fast for a business like yours and people are going to call. And I think a lot of your competitors may be in a situation where they're not going to be able to service the clients. So if there's anything that you can do to make sure that you're ready and they know you're ready to roll with your limousines and your chauffeurs, to me, that seems like that'll be the key to you getting back to business.
16: Yes, Dave. And I think that you mentioned being in the corporate work helped me a lot to prepare me a lot to be able to do a lot of things that I do today with my business. Um, keeping in touch with our employees definitely is something that we're doing and we're promoting within our industry with all the other owners in our industry. Um, but also, I well, you think know, you're that, having to, You're having you know, to when with- our business. No, I was
15: just going to say, you're having to do it with pure our grit
16: business because is right don't have a PPP loan. Yeah, I don't have the PPP loan. Uh, but we're getting leaner in the back end, right? So, yes, there's no business, but there's a lot of opportunity to make our business leaner and stronger. So, when that business comes back, because it's going to come back, we're going to be so ready to take on everything and more that we were able to handle before. So... It's also a lot of positive things in that regards. Our industry, it's, it goes a million miles per hour, and now we're having the time to focus and, and, and streamline our processes and make it leaner than ever so we can provide a much better service and be ready for when, when it comes back, because it's coming back.
3: Maria, we wish you the best of luck. Keep us posted. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Maria Priestley. Thank you. And thank Thank you you to Professor Dotson and all of our business owners tonight for joining us and telling their stories. Professor Dotson, again, is an investor and professor of management at Stanford Business School. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Sarah Eisen. Have a great weekend. Undercover Boss is next.
7: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing
8: help is available when you need it.